You're listening to a sermon from Harvest Bible Chapel, Niagara. We believe in unapologetic preaching, unashamed adoration of Jesus, unceasing prayer, unafraid witness, and uncommon community. If you have yet to do so, we would love to have you join us for worship in God's Word on Sunday mornings. For more information, visit us online at harvestniagara.ca. Thanks for listening. If you have a Bible, go ahead and open uh, with me this morning to the book of Nahum. Um, as, we, uh, uh, as we get there, um, it, you know, Nahum should be easy to find. It is the uh, two-page book in the middle of your Bible, all right? So that's a joke, all right? <laughs> but uh, um, before we dive in this morning, let's go ahead and open in a word of prayer. And then uh, we're going to d- uh, jump into what the Lord is teaching us this morning through this book. God, we love you. God, you are worthy and you are holy. And God, in the midst of uh, everything going on in this world and in this culture, God, we, we can sing all hail King Jesus. We can sing that you are the Lord of heaven and earth. We know that every knee will bow and tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. God, we rejoice in who you are. And God, even better yet, we can rejoice in who we are because of you. And so, God, this morning, as we dive into uh, this, this word from Nahum, God, I just pray that you would give us eyes to see and ears to hear the beauty of Jesus in it all. God, let us not take our eyes off the reality of a risen Savior. Let us not turn our eyes inward towards us, but let us look outwards knowing that there is more to come, that we await the return of a risen King. We love you. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen. So uh, again, as you guys get, get to Nahum, um, before, before we really get in there, I, I just kind of feel, find it fitting that this is my, my last sermon to you guys as a congregation, talking about the glory of the Lord, right? It, it is that reality. It's, it's a reminder that, that evil exists, but that God is still uh, in control and that, guess what? We will prevail. It's a reminder that that all these things are happening around us. We really don't understand them all the time, but we know that God is, is good. And we have the gospel of a resurrected Savior, and, and this isn't our final home. This is all culminating in this, this book. It's a great message for, for me personally, at least to go out on. So um, uh, it's one that I'm happy to leave you with, um, with, with our families and with our students. And, and students, I know it's difficult. Um, just know that I love you. Parents, you guys have done a great job with these students. Keep it up. I love them greatly. So thank you for uh, entrusting me with their care for the past two years. And we know that uh, God's going to continue molding them and shaping them into his image, right? So, uh, you know, it's a great honor doing that. Um, and <laughs> guys, during your Canadian winters, as you think of me, just remember that I'm going to be in shorts. All right? So you guys can uh, enjoy that one. So, um, But with that... Let's get uh, you and everyone else on, on page. So um, in 1959, a, guy's na- a guy named Charles Dickens wrote a book called A Tale of Two Cities, right? And it's probably one of the most famous introductory lines of literature. Who knows what it is? It was the best of times, and it was the worst of times. Uh, and as a side note, if you don't hear that in your head with some sort of soft British voice, you're doing it all wrong. All right, um, but as we, as we, but I'll tell you what. As I read the book in Nahum, I couldn't get that line out of my head, and that's kind of where we got that the, the sermon title, "Tale of Two Cities." 
uh, like, like many of you, like I only knew the first lines of the book, so I looked up the, actually the first paragraph and the first page, and ironically, it fit right in line with, with kind of the message of Nahum uh, in some way. And here it is. Here's the first, uh, first paragraph, in case you guys were wondering. It says this. It was the best of times, and it was the worst of times. It was the age of wisdom. It was the age of foolishness. It was the epic of belief, and it was the epic of incredulity. It was the season of light. It was the season of darkness. It was the spring of hope. It was the winter of despair. And we had everything before us, and we had nothing before us. We were all going direct to heaven, and we were all going direct to the other way. That's the first paragraph of A Tale of Two Cities. And, and I, I look at this and, and I see such that theme of contrasting realities, and which, is that, which is what we're going to see here in, in Nahum. And, and often we struggle to figure out which side of reality we're going to be on. Right? The message of Nahum is one that expo- exposes these two realities, one of victory and the other one of destruction. And so in this case... Thankfully, for the people of Israel, it's kind of like opposite of what normally we see in the prophets. Normally, it's the one that Israel receiving judgment. But in this particular vision, Israel are actually the victors, and the Assyrians are the ones facing destruction. So I'm sure it's a sense of relief for the people of Israel as this book is is being proclaimed. And so we see that the name Nahum actually means comfort or consolation, which is exactly what Israel is going to get out of this prophetic letter. And again, the message of Nahum is seeing the wickedness of man and knowing that God hates it, knowing that God is grieved by wickedness and that he will do something about it. We're actually gonna look at this book um, from a kind of start and middle kind of flow, just so you guys know. So I'm not gonna go right through the book because I think some of these different components are gonna build onto each other in a different way. But, but we're gonna be, we'll be reminded of God's patience, the destruction of Nineveh. Uh, we're gonna call on the people uh, and how God calls on the people of Israel. So let's look at verse one. It says this, an oracle concerning Nineveh, the book of the vision of Nahum of Elkosh. So, We know two things about Nahum as a person. One, he has an oracle concerning a vision uh, that he had of Nahum and that he was of Elkosh. How do we know that? It's in the text. What else do we know about Nahum? Absolutely nothing, okay? We know nothing else of the prophet Nahum um, outside him as a person. But here's the thing. The lack of knowledge of who we know about this prophet is nothing in comparison to, to his message, right? And so he said he had an oracle Right, so this, this word oracle actually, actually means, uh, if I can find it in my notes, there we go. Right, the oracle means burden or announcement. I should have known that, but that's okay. Oracle of announcement, right. He has clearly something to say to the people of the southern kingdom uh, of Israel and to the people of Nineveh. Nineveh it's, in order to understand the true impact of Nahum, we actually have to remember Jonah, because Nahum is technically Jonah part two. Right? And, and, and so we remember the city of Nineveh. So if we remember the city, God has already given them a chance to repent. And if we remember the ending of Jonah, right? A book about 100 years prior to Nahum, we actually see the people of Nineveh receive the word of the Lord through Jonah. And what do they do? They repent. And in the book of Jonah, that's it. That's the end of the story. There's fireworks and parades and high fives because God is not going to destroy them. They've repented. Jonah's mad sitting outside a wall because he didn't want to see that happen. 
And see, that's what we actually assume at the end of Jonah until we actually open up Nahum. See, the, the background of all these things between Jonah and Nahum are important to understand before uh, we actually dive in because Nineveh was repentant for a generation, but it didn't last. Nineveh repented of their sin and turned towards the Lord, but it was simply for a generation it didn't last. So this is what we can understand, that there is a true thing of false repentance. You can for a moment understand the majesty, the glory, the grandeur of the Lord, and you can quickly understand and, and say, yes, yes, I get it, but then everything within you begins to eat you alive and you begin to turn back to your sin. This, the pseudo-repentance of, of Nineveh actually reminds me uh, of the parable of the sower. And the words, like the words of sal salvation were, were given and the plant quickly sprung up. But what happened? The thorns and the weeds grew up and quickly choked it out. That's, that's the picture that we're getting here. For, for what reason did they turn away from the Lord? We, we actually don't know that. And, but if, here's the reality. If you're a believer for any amount of time, we all know that there's a million things that we put before our relationship with God. And those things can easily distract us, right? It's the same picture of the people of Nineveh. Nineveh just didn't get distracted, though. This is the same picture of a people who didn't follow true repentance. It wasn't just a, guys, understand me, church, this wasn't just a lapse of judgment. This wasn't just a, I'm, I'm repentant, but I still struggle with sin. This was an all-out, complete turn against the glory of the Lord. They had heard, they had received, and then they turned and rejected. See, true repentance actually uh, endures this, this test of time, right? And so they, they may have heard for a season, and they may have been showed a time of obedience, but after a few generations, they were back to their old ways, and again, when I think about the, the, the town of Nineveh, the city of Nineveh, right? I even said town, right? It's the city of Nineveh, right? Like, it's not some podunk mountain town, right? Uh, growing up, when I heard the story of Jonah, I used to think about, uh, about Jonah sitting inside some sparsely populated mountain town next to a half wall. Anybody else, or is it just me, right? Um, like, I just I used to think about, like, it was just kind of like this, like, yoke dido, right? Whatever. And, and Jonah was getting angry about this, but the reality is Nineveh was a city of grandeur. It was a massive city with wealth, and, and it had a strong army and a huge wall and a ton of people. Like, the city was a legit fortress with a moat. It was right against the Tigris River, and so the people of Nineveh actually carved out a moat around their city of sorts, and they had protection there. It was one of the most grand and powerful cities on the planet. But we see that the repentance of the day of Jonah and the rebellion towards God in the day of Nahum was evident. See, it wasn't just a rejection of God, but Nineveh went into a whole conquest of the entire world including God's people. Now just imagine that, which I'm sure in 2020, it's not too hard to imagine that. But having people who say they walk with you to turn their back on you, only to not just ignore you, but to try to conquer you. It's exactly what happened between the people of Assyria and the people of Israel. Again, that's why this is a tale of two cities. Because we're seeing the destruction of Nineveh, but yet the vindication of Israel. 
And so if we believe that Nahum is an oracle against the wickedness of the Assyrians, specifically their capital, right? Um, but Nahum is also an oracle about trusting God, and guess what? Prote- uh, trusting God for protection and, and no one else. See, we, we look back again, I'm a, I'm a history nerd, right? So I always, always dig into the history about how we got to where we are. And in this particular case, under King Manasseh, Judah in southern Israel was a, a, a allowed their security to be given to them by their captors, the Assyrians. This is, this is where their trust lied. Their trust didn't lie in the Lord. The trust lied in their, their safety and their freedom. Their trust lied in what, what they were going to be saved from, not to what they were going to be saved to. And so we can see that under Manasseh, uh, th- that's what happened. And they thought they were protected, but Israel was harsh to the people of Judah. And actually what happened was Israel, uh, the people of Assyria actually ended up conquering the 10 tribes of northern, northern Israel. And then they began to choke southern Israel. And so you have this Assyrian army surrounding Jerusalem and they're looking at their impending doom. They're saying, like, what's gonna happen? The people that are supposed to protect us are now turning their backs on us and they're squeezing us in. And we have no idea what's about to happen. But then we see the, the reign of, of King Josiah of Judah, who was only 16, and on his 18th reign as king, this is the, the story of 2 Kings 22, that they found the book of Deuteronomy in the temple. Now let that sink in. They found the book of Deuteronomy in the temple, which means that they had lost the book of Deuteronomy in the temple which means for how long, at least for 18 years and way before that, because of King Manasseh and all these different things, Israel had turned their back on the Lord they claimed that they were going to pursue and follow. They turned their back on the God that brought them out of Egypt. They turned their back on the God that gave them the promise and they turned their back on the God who was giving them promise after promise after promise. And then they lost the law. You know, we, we say like, it's hard to imagine, but if we actually inspect our own lives, it's not that hard to imagine how easy that is to happen. We begin to find things on our own way. And so we even see this warring Assyrian, uh, people of Assyria, you know, not just wage war against Israel, but going up into Egypt and taking over the city of Thebes. And, and then they worked their way into Egypt, and that's who the Assyrians were. And so we see that that from the time of Moses until now, there was generations of apostasy, and now that they were being reminded of the glory of Yahweh, one one city receiving undeserved mercy and the other city receiving their due punishment. And so as we jump into the rest of this text, let us consider this, which is our first point. Remember God's character. Remember God's character, the God who gives us undeserved mercy, the God who gives us himself in this time. First, we gotta consider the book of Jonah, a wicked city and a hesitant people, a hesitant prophet, both receive mercy for acts of disobedience. So God, in the book of Jonah, if you remember, 
God allowed preserve Nineveh, and then God allowed and preserve Jonah for actually following through. But let's read Nahum 1, 2, and 3. It says this, the Lord is a jealous and avenging God. The Lord, uh, and, uh, yeah, avenging God. The Lord is avenging and wrathful. The Lord takes vengeance on his adversaries and keeps wrath for his enemies. The Lord is slow to anger and great in power, and the Lord will by no means clear the guilty. So what does, again, reading that passage, what does, what does the Lord say about himself? That he is jealous and that he is avenging. And understand this, like when God says he's jealous, he's not talking like he's a 13-year-old boy whose crush doesn't like him back, right? He's not talking about these. It's not like some schoolyard jealousy. It is not petty. It's, it's not the desire for what we wish we had. God's jealousy is the demand for what is rightfully owed to him. See, the Lord demands for us total allegiance. His jealousy is for his people, not of his people. And so we also can see, and we know because of the text, the Lord is avenging and wrathful. And I, for one, am am thankful that I am not the object of his wrath. I'm thankful that we have a Savior who bore the wrath of the Lord that we would not have to. One thing I've realized in my own life is that God doesn't take sin lightly, but I certainly do. Right? I, I sin without discretion, and then I move along like it's nothing. Or worse, when I find myself in sin, what do I do most of the time? I throw a prayer up to God, like a, like a bone to a dog almost, making myself feel better, and all the while going like, God, we're good, right? All the while is, am I broken over my sin? Am I broken over my wickedness? Am I broken over my evil? Am I broken over all the ways that my life doesn't point towards Jesus? But that's how we treat our sin. That's how we deal with our sin. Look, and, and when we don't see sin in our lives, it's not, it's not a good sight to the Lord. It's sickening before him. But it shouldn't be that way, and we should care greatly about our sin, and I'm thankful because outside the blood of Christ, I'm in the crosshairs of the Lord's wrath. And I know that I would be facing that, that wrath, that, that punishment, that his wrath would be poured out on me outside of Jesus. So what else is the Lord? Verse three, this is the, uh, this is the, the verse I, I read and I look to the heavens, I say, thank you, God. And I mean that literally because the, the Lord is slow to anger, great in power. Which means if you or anything like me, you probably mess up quite a few times a day, and if you have a a God who you know you're sinning against or who you don't know you're sinning against, but you end up sinning against, guess what? We know that he is slow to anger, and I'm thankful for that, but it doesn't mean we have a license to do what we want to do. See, actually, when when we see that the Lord is slow to anger and great in power, look, Nahum is actually using the very words found in Exodus 34. Right? And if you think about the narrative of Exodus, in Exodus 32, we see the people of, uh, we see Moses go to the, to the top of the mountain, and they said, well, he's not returning, so hey, let's, uh, let's give us a, a golden calf, and hey, we need something to worship. And so they throw all their jewelry, their money, their whatever into this pile, they melt it down, and they create this, this golden calf. And when in Exodus, uh, and so we see Moses coming down from the mountain and he's like, what are you doing? And he takes the tablets that the Lord had entrusted him to write and he crushed them on the ground. 
And in verse, uh, in Exodus 34, we actually begin to see God command Moses to remake the tablets. He's like, look, I know you broke them. I know you're angry, rightfully so. I should be more angry than you. But here's the thing, remake the tablets and rewrite what I tell you. That is a picture of a God slow to anger. Look, in in the very moment when God could have written Israel off, in the very moment when he could have realized that their hearts were so inclined to want an idol for a few moments of, of their leader not being there, he showed mercy. In the very moment, he could have just said, you know what, we're starting over. Like, you, I'm going to find somebody else. I don't need you. I don't want you. Like, you guys can't even keep it together for three days. But he showed mercy. But see here, when Nahum actually uses verse, uh, Exodus 34 in this verse 3, he actually cuts the verse short. Exodus 34 says this. The Lord... The Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will, who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children, on the children's children's to the third and fourth generation. That's the fuller picture of what Nahum is trying to say. But I guarantee you when Israel read that, they knew exactly what he was talking about. They knew the fuller picture that he is graceful, gracious and merciful. He is bounding in steadfast love, but he will by no means clear the guilty. Guess what, church? I know we feel like sometimes we get off scot-free because we feel that we're clear to blame, but we're not. The only reason that we're cleared of blame, and I put air quotes on that, is because Jesus took the blame for us. So you're only clear because of Jesus' obedience on the cross. Not because of what you've done, not because of your church attendance, not because you're singing well, not because of whatever. It's because of Jesus. And we can't miss that in this entire book. He will have his vengeance on his enemies and the enemies of his people. So look, according to the book of Nahum, who is guilty? Well, in the Old Testament, again, we're used to hearing that it's Israel. uh, But while it might, look, Israel's not doing too great at this point, right? Like they're just coming out of like idolatry for generations. They're not doing too hot. But the Lord is seeing their walks towards obedience. And he is seeing the, the enemies of Israel beginning to come around Jerusalem. And God takes action. The Lord makes it clear he's going to destroy Nineveh. God wants Israel to know this, that there is an end and there is a victory. And that's their second point, right? There is an end and there is a victory. See, the first time Nahum actually addresses Nineveh in this book is actually in verse 9. It says this, What do you plot against the Lord? He will make a complete end. Trouble will not rise up a second time. Verse 10 even goes and says, For they are like entangled thorns, like drunkards as they drink. They are consumed like stubble fully dried. See, trouble will not rise up a second time. This points to the wickedness uh, of the repentance from Nineveh the first time when when Jonah was prophesying to them. He will not allow their destruction to continue. He will not allow their oppression of Israel to continue. But what I love about Nahum says to Nineveh, he says, look, he says, what do you plot against the Lord? This is a contemporary version of like, look, 
<laughs> what do you got? Like, please, like, enlighten me. Like, like tell me, right? What, what do you have even remotely close to the glory and the majesty and the power and the might of the God of Israel? Like, this is Nahum's challenge to the Assyrians. This is Nahum's challenge to the city of Nineveh. And again, this wasn't like a, a throw a stone at your, you know, not making a mark. This is a direct challenge saying, look, you want to go? If you want to surround us, if you want to fight, what do you have that's going to conquer us? And in their pride and in their arrogance, people like the Assyrians are going, I can show you what I got. Set up the siege tower. Set up our chariots. Set up our lines. Set up our flanks. Set up everything. We're going to attack. But see, so often when people say, what do you got? The first thing we say is, well, let me show you my resources and let me show you my power rather than saying, let me show you my God. And so, so often we miss that reality. Like that's the ultimate challenge. Let's, let's look at verse 12. It says this, thus says the Lord, though they are at full strength and many, they will be cut down and they will pass away. Though I have afflicted you, I will afflict you no more. See, Nahum even says that, that God knows you're at full strength. Nahum looks at the people of Assyria and says, I know that you're at full strength. I know you're at the peak and the height of your power. But you know what? It doesn't matter. It's where he wants you so that when you fall, you will have no excuses. Nahum challenges and says, look, we want you at your peak. Our Lord wants you at your best. We don't want you after a 12-mile march being up for three days, having no water in your system. We want you ready to go, ready to fight at your highest because at the end of the day, you can't have any excuses. You can say you brought it all and you got destroyed. That's how, uh, that's how Nahum is starting to frame this argument when he's talking about the people of Nineveh. And I love this, verse 14, it says this, the Lord has given commandment about you. No more shall your name be perpetuated for the house of your gods. I will cut off the carved image and the metal image. I will make your grave for you are vile. Look, no more shall you, your name be perpetuated. This is the picture of what actually happens to, to Nineveh. God was so against them and their descendants that no one actually was around to bear their name because after the fall of Nineveh, quickly we see the fall of the entire Assyrian empire in history. God will be so against them that, that no descendants will bear their name. He will wipe them off the face of the earth. They will stand as a symbol of what God can do and they will stand as a symbol of only what God can do. Nineveh will be exposed. Nineveh will be destroyed. And again, this isn't lost on the Assyrians. Mind you, like when the Assyrians conquered a city, they didn't take prisoners. When the Assyrians conquered a city, scholars of antiquity actually said that the Assyrians would go in, siege a town, they would completely depopulate it, men, women, and children, and they would reestablish the city as their own. So when, when the, the vision of Nahum includes Nahum saying, oh, by the way, you're going to be wiped off the face of the earth, you're not going to have anyone to bear your name, no one's going to perpetuate you anymore, they're getting the picture. They might not believe the picture, but they're certainly getting the picture. See, in a few minutes, we're going to see how the destruction of Nineveh would actually take place. What Nahum said would happen, happened. Nahum's not writing this destruction after the fact. Nahum is actually writing this before it happens. The city was, in fact, destroyed beyond all recognition. See, God used the Babylonians to actually accomplish his, his purposes. 
He didn't rain fire down from heaven like he did with Sodom and Gomorrah. This time he actually used wickedness to drive out wickedness. Right? The, the Babylonian Empire sieged the city in the year 612 B.C., in the entirety of chapter two, we see that Nahum described this very battle in the fashion that it, would, that, that it actually was gonna happen. This wasn't him writing after the fact. It was, it was him proving the supremacy of the Lord over all of creation. Now, I want you to, to understand this too, right? This isn't like a repent and God will relent type of prophecy. He's already had that with the people of Nineveh and Jonah. It's not that type of prophecy. And in fact, God's just like, you know what? Too little, too late. You had your moment. You even turned to me, but you forgot me and you left me. So this isn't a, a repent and relent type of prophecy. It's the outpouring of God's wrath on those who chose to rebel in the face of the opportunity that was given. God is saying it's too late. This is a Israel, you need to watch this type of moment. This is a Israel, you know all those times and how many chances I've given you? You need to watch what really happens to my enemies. Not the punishments that I give you. Not the struggles or the sufferings that I give you. If you really wanna be my enemy, Israel, if you don't wanna worship me because you are my people, watch what I'm going to do to your enemies. And so we, we see that in, in chapter two, verse one. It says this, the scatter has come upon you. Man the ramparts, watch the road, dress for battle, collect all of your strength. See, Nahum writes, uh, writes the, Babel, the Babylonian lines will actually advance and they will never relent. This is actually was the beginning of a three-year siege of the Babylonians on the city of Nineveh. Now just imagine three years. Now imagine you are stuck in your city being sieged by an outside force for three years. Constant fighting, constant battle for three years. But Nineveh says, our walls will hold. And they did, but for a while, right? They will hold, but only, only for a while. Nahum saying, collect your strength, Nineveh. Be away from the main gate of the city because the enemy is coming. Look at chapter two, verses six through nine. It says this, the river gates, the river gates, they are, they are opened. The palace melts away, its mistress is stripped, she is carried off, her slave, uh, her slave girl is lamenting, all these different things, right? The walls hold until there is actually a flood that came and washed away the main gate of the city. And see, again, like I told you, Nineveh was actually set right on the, the Tigris River and the Assyrians had a, their, their river wall was 4,500 yards long. That's 4,000 meters or something like that, right? 4,000 meters long. That was to protect them from their enemy. But in the midst of this siege, a flood came and began to erode the foundations of their walls and their wall came crashing down. And just like Nahum had, had a vision of, just like Nahum had prophesied, the Babylonians saw the hole and they entered the city. Chariots and, and, and people being killed all over the place. They were depopulating the city of Nineveh. That's, that's what happened here. The city was ransacked, verse, uh, chapter three, verse eight. He says, are you better than Thebes that sat by the Nile with water all around her, her rampant sea? Look, it says this, Cush was her strength, Egypt too, and that without limit. Put and the Libyans were also her helpers. All that is saying this is that not long before Nahum's writing, the people of Assyria actually went and they conquered Thebes and they, they took the city. And so Nahum is telling the Assyrians, like, do you think you're better than that city? You are almost sister cities, you're identical in your defenses, but at least... At least the Egyptians, 
at least the people of Thebes, at least they had help, at least they had friends. You, on the other hand, you have nothing. You, you have absolutely nothing. And so, you know, I begin to turn and I begin to think about, about the, the, the passage of Romans 8, right? Because the Lord says something that's absolutely terrifying and something that I, I hope I never hear in my life. They had something where it says this, you don't, have, you don't have allies and quite frankly, I am against you. Like when the Lord drops that line, it's like the ultimate mic drop against people. Like, look, you don't have friends. And by the way, not only do you not have friends, but I'm against you. The Lord of heaven and earth, the God of all creation, the God of Israel is against you. He says it twice. He says it in in chapter two, verse 13. He says in chapter three, verse five. And those four words, the God of Israel was proclaiming that Nineveh's fall wasn't a sole act of war, but it was an act of God. I am against you. And so the city that once understood the reality of God now stands opposed to the very God that they repented to. And their false repentance, their faux repentance, put them in the crosshairs of the God and the people who they now attacked. And so that's why I'm reminded of Romans 8. For if God is for you, who can be what? Against you. But I, if I'm forced to, to understand that that way, I'm also forced to understand the opposite direction, that if God is against you, then you have no chance. It doesn't matter who you bring to the table, you have no one. This is so at the end, uh, of the end of the book of Nahum, it actually ends, it says this, that the whole world will rejoice at your demise because of your wickedness and your cruelty. No one will miss you, Nineveh. No one will miss you, Assyria, because of your wickedness. And this is where it takes us back to the very front part of this that Israel needed to be reminded of first. But I wanted to remind us of the fall of Nineveh before I pointed us to this. And here's the third point. God is still in control. In the midst of 2020, I feel like I put a crosshair in myself when I say God's still in control because I think a lot of people would agree with me on premise but we see everything begin to slip away and we're like, what's God doing? He's still in control. But God is doing, allowing this. He's still in control. But don't you understand that? God's still in control. God's still in control. And to be reminded, not only is he in control, he was never out of control. Right? Church, just like Israel had to be reminded of that constantly, so do I, right? God is still in control when my life seems to be like everyone freaking out or nothing seems to be lining up the way that we want or whatever else. God is still in control. So after we understand, it's like in the midst of everything, it's hard to see what he's actually doing sometimes, but he is in control. And I I guarantee you, Israel being stuck in the crosshairs for all these different prophets, God calling them out on their wickedness, God showing them he's about to pour out his wrath. He actually stops short and says, you know what? Let me show you on your enemies. And so he begins to say, in verses three through eight, the, the second part of three says this, look, he's not gonna clear the guilty. Look, his way, his way is a whirlwind and storm. The clouds are dust at his feet. He rebukes the sea and he makes it dry. Look, it is him who dries up the rivers. Verse five, the mountains quake before him. The hills melt, the heavens, he, the earth heaves before him. Who can stand before his indignation? Who can endure the heat of his anger? It is his wrath that is poured out like fire. 
The rocks are broken into pieces by him. Verse 7, look at this. After all of that, Nahum reminds the people of Israel, the Lord is good. A stronghold in the day of trouble, he knows those who take refuge in him. All I have to say, two things to quickly pull from that right there. The first is Nahum's metaphorical shaking Israel by the shoulders and says, I know you're tired and I know you're weak and I know you're scared. I know you see defeat on the horizon, but have you forgotten who you are? You are the children of the Lord. You are his people. Yahweh is your God. Nahum is saying, remember this, you're not in control. He's saying, I, I break the rocks. I, causes, I cause the waters to rise. I call the earth to come to my feet. I cause these things, not you. I am the Lord, not you. And this is when we even have to remember that the world's gonna be, be unfair to those who call Christ king, church. This world, this world will murder, it'll burn, it'll destroy. But here's the thing you have to remember and the thing that I have to remember is that the Lord is its avenger, not me. He does this, not me, not us. It is his battle and it is his victory, not ours. Here's the second thing. When you are, Nahum is saying, look, when you're scared, Israel, and you are, you're being tried and you're seeing wickedness conquer, know this, verse seven, the Lord is good. He is your stronghold. He is where you run. He is your protection, not Assyria. Assyria is trying to conquer you. They're trying to kill you. They say in one breath, they're trying to save you. In the next breath, they're trying to conquer you. They are not your saviors. The Lord is. The Lord is where you're gonna find relief and security. And I think it's something, church, that Israel had forgotten. They'd forgotten the goodness of the Lord. They'd forgotten about the law of Deuteronomy. I mean, they, they found it in the temple, for crying out loud. They had forgotten about the reality of the Lord. To them, he was simply just something that they gave platitude to, and they didn't truly follow him. And let me be honest here, I think it's something that we have forgotten too. We, we've gotten so wrapped up in this theory and that theory, this discussion and that discussion that we've actually taken our eyes off the Lord and we have actually trusted too much in ourselves. I mean, here's the thing, like, do you realize when we, when we take our eyes off the Lord, it's like we're screaming at everyone else to shoot the target while we're blindfolded? It just, it, it, doesn't, it doesn't work that way. And so Nahum's reminding Israel, look, when trouble comes, rely on the Lord. When trouble comes, where do you turn? When trouble comes, what happens? Nothing in this world is under your control. Nothing. We trust in the Lord that he has it under control. And even when he makes it hard for us, guess what, Israel? God is in control. And even when we don't see it going our way, guess what, Israel? God's in control. And Israel, when he, you feel like he's not in control, you press harder into him, you press harder into him, you press harder into him knowing that he is the source of control. So all that to say, the Lord did what Nahum said would happen. So after a three-year siege, a flood on the Tigris crushed the river gate wall. Uh, it collapsed, opened a hole into the city. The Babylonian chariots and soldiers sacked and destroyed the city, sending the Assyrians into hiding 
They destroyed the city so much that they actually fulfilled the prophecy that they would no longer be perpetuated, that they would be completely forgotten uh, because from 612 BC to 1842 when the city was actually excavated. The city was lost and forgotten after the siege from Babylon for 2,400 years. And so, so what God said, the city wouldn't be seen again. It would be walked over literally. God proved his promise. And so all that to say this is when we begin to say, all right, so what now? What now? And quickly, two application points, all right? First one, church, again, I'm gonna ruffle some feathers in these application points. I already know that, but it's true to the word. God has promised struggle. He is in control, amen? Mark Dever uh, is a pastor in America, said this, the book of Nahum presumes that people, especially God's people, will have a hard time in this world. We need to always remember that our father is king, but we live in a world that hates our father and his kingdom. If you are his, hard times will come. Be assured of that. So we understand Nahum actually uses Nineveh as an example that God will allow evil empires and those who are against God's people to endure, but only for a while. At the end, he will be the victor and he will ensure it is that God's people who are enduring to the end. Like I, I, I get all of, all of our presupposed things that we bring into this room, but what we need to hear this morning is it doesn't matter what the culture throws your way. You need to understand and believe that God is in control. Even in the battle, we must remember to endure. We, look, we have a tendency to run towards creature comforts when we are stressed and when we are uncertain and when life gets hard and we have to stand firm and stand fast in our faith. We, when we start making our own plans in the face of struggle, we actually try, we end up trying to take and rip the wheel out of God's hand for our life. So remember, church, that God's promises are for God's people. And if you are in Christ, guess what? You are a recipient of those promises. And in the New Testament church, your promise is Jesus. Your promise is salvation in him, your promise is that you have a risen Savior who sits on the throne on the right hand of the Father. Your promise is that you are not going to face God's wrath because Jesus has already faced it for you. That's your promise. Nahum reminds us that the Lord will deal with those who oppose us. It is the epitome of Deuteronomy 32 where he says, Vengeance is mine, says the Lord. I will repay. Again, like, I kind of say the tongue, like, not that verse tongue in cheek, but this tongue in cheek, like, I struggle with that as a person. It might just be the fact that I'm an American, right? Because we're always like, go get them, right? But the reality is like, I struggle with that because that's not my nature. My nature isn't to say, all right, God, you're in control. You take care of it. My nature is to be like, let's go, right? And, and fight, freeze, or flight, you all know where you are in that, right? I'm way over here. <laughs> like my fight is probably through the window, Right? I don't think there's a passive bone about my body. <laughs> you guys know me well enough, you know that to be true. Right? Like, my fight is way over here, and that's where my, my wickedness, my sinfulness takes me. Like, I'm going to go after it. But I can't do that because I need to understand that God's in control. And the moment that I start going through the window to fight, I mean, that's the moment I start saying, God, I got it, not you. You sit back. Let me take care of it. Right? Now, look, I'm, I'm, what, I'm, what I'm not saying is this. We're not passive. I'm not saying we sit around twiddling our thumbs going like, yeah, God, God will take care of it, we're good. No, church, we fight against sin, we fight against evil, and we fight against it hard. 
But we do that knowing that the Lord's in control, not trying to take over every single thing. Look, as a, as a man, as a, as a husband, as a father, like that's something I have to battle, right? I try to take control. Guys, we try to be the solution on everything. Our wives tell us a problem and we try to fix it instead of listen, right? I try to fix the world and, and do so little for it, guys. It's like taking a, a cup to the ocean and carrying it home and thinking you made a difference as you pour it down the sink. I'm not gonna lie, it's, it's often uncomfortable and it makes us nervous that we really aren't the final determination of our lives, right? Innately within us, we are terrified the fact that we don't have the final say over our lives. You don't have the determination if you have the final breath of your life. You don't know if you're gonna breathe your next breath. You don't know if you're gonna make it home. You don't know if you're gonna make it through the week. You are not the final determination of your life. The Lord is. And so we need to remember church, that God has promised the struggle, but he is in control. You know, we, we live in a world of, of things like abortion and inequality and rampant wickedness and human sex trafficking and worldwide slavery. And you know what? We end up worrying about the petty things, the ridiculous things. We hold on to the little petty things and, and, and we make them significant. But here's the reality. Do you know why we do that? It's because in the petty and in the ridiculousness, the things that we make significant, it's because we think we actually can hold on to a sense of control. We're going like, no, I got this. This is my thing. I'm going to hold on to it. I'm not going to let go. And that's where we end up coming. Because when we look at the larger problems of life, we, we feel helpless, but the things that we feel like we can control, we grasp onto and we refuse to let them go. And the Lord's going like, God, I'm over the big and I'm over the small. What are you doing? And that's why we do it. And even as I think of control, like, and the world telling you to take control of your life, I think one of the biggest idols in North America is self and person. Self-worth, self-importance, personal freedom. We, we clamor for these things like they're innately ours. You know, we live by the life, peace, and pursuit of happiness. And church, I hate to tell you, that's the U.S. Declaration of Independence. That's not Jesus. Yes, a byproduct of living for the Lord is life, is peace, is happiness. But those things are a product of him. It's not about us. See, Jesus has promised us tribulation and salvation, nothing else. Right? In fact, the only freedom that we've been promised is actually promised to us in Christ, Galatians 5. It is for freedom Christ has set you free. Stand firm, therefore, and no longer bind yourself to the yoke of slavery. That is what we're free in. We're free in Christ, and we're free from sin because of Christ. And guess what? Even in that, he still has the control. In an odd sense, it's freeing because we know that he's in control and he's in control of all of it. And so I implore you, if you believe that, live it. Don't freak out. Look to the heavens and know that the Lord is holding you with his mighty right hand. Quickly, here's the, the second and last thing. Notice our victory is found in him. Knowing God is in control doesn't make us passive. I'm not saying that we don't sin against evil. Again, like I said, on the contrary, we wage war against every type of sin and evil, but in the midst of the fight, do not forget it's not you. So if you have victory, it's only because God has allowed it. 
Nahum 1, 2, it says, the Lord is jealous and avenging. The Lord is avenging and wrathful. He takes vengeance on his adversaries. He keeps his wrath for his enemies. That's not your job. So in the, in the midst of a crazy 2020, I implore you not to forget the gospel. As this is my last sermon to you guys, I implore you, do not forget the gospel. As we begin to understand this world, do not forget the gospel. Remember to imitate Jesus who was low and who was gentle. He was broken, he was grieved, but he was gentle. He was powerful, he was a warrior. This is a time to proclaim Jesus, church. In the midst of everything, in the midst of the chaos, in the midst of the confusion, this is a time to point people to where and who you believe is in control. And so that's when I say our ultimate victory is found in Christ. And I know that's easier said than done, but trust me, there's things in my life that I have to battle against not to let come out, and I implore you to do the same because God is in control. So over the past several weeks and months and all these different things, if we believe that ultimately our victory is found in Christ, I've talked to so many people, some of you guys in this room, who can swear up and down that the Lord is doing something big. He is preparing his church for something. And you know what? This might be that he's coming soon. And if so, we, we say what? Come, Lord Jesus, come. But in the midst of all that, know that our job is the proclamation of the God who is coming. So... All that to say the destruction of Nineveh wasn't the end of the struggle for Israel because then Babylon took over the role of the Assyrians in Jerusalem. There's a commentator that says Babylon's victory over Nineveh is a picture of God's victory over Israel's arch enemy. But I say this, the Lord is still tearing down strongholds and in this world, church, you're never gonna find a utopia. In this world, you're never gonna find some some. Christian utopia where it's going to be like, you know, you walk through the doors and angels sing in and, and everything's perfect. And you're like, well, hello there. Like, it's not going to work that way. The Lord is still tearing down strongholds. He is still changing lives. He is still conforming people into the image of his son, Jesus. He's still showing the world that he is great and that he has given his mercy, that he's restraining his wrath. He is showing his power and his might and reminding Israel and us that he alone is worthy to be considered our king. Amen? Amen. So let's remember that, church. Let's pray. God, we love you. And God, you are so good. God, in the midst of everything, I just pray that we would be reminded through the reality of Nahum that you are reigning supreme. God, knowing that you are the one in control, knowing that you are the one who is our stronghold, knowing the one that you, that is our protection, and God, knowing that you have destroyed the enemy, you will continue to destroy the enemy, God, and we know for, for the eternal, God, we know that the enemy is already in your grasp. So God, we don't sit around hoping that you win. God, we sit from a place of victory already. So God, I pray that we would allow our hearts to get to that place this morning. We love you. It's in Christ's name we pray.